Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. This is Mikhail Dino, and you are listening to the New Books in African Studies podcast. Joining me today is Professor Kelly Duke Bryant, currently Associate Professor of History at Rowan University in Glassboro, New Jersey. Today, we'll be discussing her new book, Educationist Politics, Colonial Schooling, and Political Debate in Senegal, 1850s to 1914, published by the University of Wisconsin Press. Professor Duke Bryant, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. Good. Well, I wonder if you'd uh, begin uh, telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, Well, I completed my PhD in African history at Johns Hopkins University in 2009, and I've been teaching African history at Rowan since then. And the book came out of my dissertation project, although it's quite different from my dissertation, um, went through lots of revisions as these things go, um, with uh, some new material and uh, really a different frame. And um, I have been working in Senegal uh, for over a decade, um, essentially on this project. So it's really great to see it um, come to come to the press and come to the public in this way, and I'm really happy to, to be able to talk a little bit about it. Um, I you know, started to be interested in Senegal as a study abroad student in college, and um, now 15 years later, I'm uh, really delighted to be able to share what I learned through research and writing um, about Senegalese history with, with your listening public. Great. Well, um, we're really excited to have you. I really enjoyed um, reading this book. It was, um, it, yeah, it was definitely a, a different, um, a different take on some of the things, some of the sort of dominant themes uh, concerning, um, particularly French colonial history on the continent. And I wonder if, if you just kind of frame our discussion by by talking about how uh, your work. Um, does in fact uh, mark a departure from sort of a, a familiar narrative of education being uh, being a tool of indoctrination um, in Africa. Absolutely. Uh, one of the things that really, I think, kind of struck me in, um, in looking at the archival documentation on education in, in Senegal was just how hungry uh, African families and students were for this foreign form of education. Now, that certainly didn't apply to everyone. As I, as I write about in uh, the, the beginning part of the book, the, the vast majority of Africans during the period that, um, that my book focuses on weren't interested in French education, and they essentially rejected it in one way or another. Um, but the ones who became interested, I think very quickly saw it as um, something that they could use as a resource, either for their own kind of personal goals and strategies, a way to kind of upend, for example, traditional um, hierarchies in their society uh, or to claim a new sort of political role for themselves. Um, So there were ways that they could use it directly for their personal goals, but there also were ways that French colonial education figured into local political debates and local um, kind of political contests. And I think that that is a, it is a very different narrative than what um, 
the kind of first generations of scholars who were looking at uh, colonial education in Africa concluded about education, right? At, which, as you said in your question, um, those previous studies, many of the previous studies, really looked at it as a tool of, do- of colonial indoctrination, a kind of way of colonizing the consciousness of students. And certainly there was some of that going on, but uh, my, I guess my critique of that narrative is um, that it sort of assumes that Africans were entirely passive in the, in the process and that they had no way of, uh, you know, responding to and making something new out of this colonial um, uh, colonial institution. And those are the processes that I try to trace in the book. Okay. And in particular, in the first uh, part of the book, you look specifically at how adults, um, you know, rather than being sort of... Um, uh, passive uh, receptors of, of, of um, this expansion of colonial education um, sort of reacted to it um, and, and as you mentioned, sort of rejected it in, in many ways. Um, can, you, can you say a bit about that? Sure. So the, the first chapter of the book focuses on those people who turned away from the schools. Um, and it looks at d- different groups of adults in the society. Um, there's a section on fathers, that's probably the longest section there, uh, a shorter section on mothers due to the, mostly really due to the lack of, um, you know, sources on, on, on women in this period, and then a section that looks at Quranic instructors, Mayabu. And essentially I'm making the case there that people, as you, as you would expect, rejected French colonial schools because they found that their own methods of educating children, um, which had been present in their society for generations were much better suited for the needs and goals of their of their society, um, and that's you know that is a, a, an incredibly um, shocking conclusion. But what what I think is useful about that chapter is that that's a kind of assumption that a lot of other scholars have made, kind of in passing. Oh well, you know, lots of people rejected um, rejected schooling. Um, and they, you know, they didn't, they didn't like the new institution. They thought their own institutions were better, but it hadn't ever really been substantiated with evidence that, that at least not in the reading that I had done. Um, because usually it's a, it's a kind of a side that people make on their way to, to doing something else, right? It's not usually the main focus of, of research on colonial education. And so what I try to do is to document that, to show that, um, based on the sources that, that are available to me, yes, in fact, most um, most people who rejected these colonial schools did so because they felt like they um, weren't weren't in tune with their own goals for their children, which were pre- predominantly to become uh, mature and socially responsible adults and contributors to the society, and for Muslim families to become good Muslims, which meant memorizing um, the Quran learning the basic precepts of the faith and prayer and all of those things. And those those goals could be accomplished through traditional educational methods. I also make the case in the chapter that um, those, those educational methods were, um, you know, important to the adults in the society, not only because they helped train their children, but because they also reproduced the authority of the, the authority figures in the society, which were predominantly men, um, elders, and uh, chronic school instructors. And so the format of traditional schooling was very much designed to kind of reinscribe traditional 
uh, Senegalese hierarchies um, with fathers and elder men at the top, um, and then sort of the Quranic instructors also having quite a bit of authority that came from their role as elder men, but also really crucially came from their role as instructors of the Quran and the reputations that they were able to uh, generate for themselves by successfully training children in, in, their, in the faith. Great. I mean, actually, before we sort of discuss in more depth uh, this this reproduction of, of um, authority and, and hierarchy, we can sort of just uh, backtrack uh, for a second to where you're, where you're talking about um, documenting this decision-making process of, of parents and elders um, and, and talk a little bit about your documentary sources. Absolutely. The book is based mostly on a colonial archive, and I think most studies of, of colonial Africa are, particularly for the, this earlier period when oral sources um, aren't, you can't use oral sources sort of to make a direct argument, right? Because the people who were alive during the period of time that I'm interested in, which ends at 1914, uh, no one is, is still living today. So I did do some interviews, um, over 40 of them, but I use them pretty, um, I have to use them very carefully in the book, you know, use them to either give us a sense of what Senegalese people today remember about this history and this past, or I use them as a way of, kind of trying to elaborate on some of the things I see in the documents, but I'm trying to try to be very clear that this material is coming from an oral source, and so, you know, it's collapsing quite a bit of history in, in between the documents and, and today. Um, so the documentary sources uh, from the Colonial Archive include uh, a lot of administrative reports and correspondence on colonial schooling, so quite a, quite a large number of letters and, you know, collections of statistics that teachers are required to submit on a periodic basis. Um, there also are reports that were sent from Senegal to, uh, to the colonial ministry in Paris on the subject of education. The, the French officials who were um, working in Senegal during this period were and I think probably for throughout colonialism, uh, we're very interested in, in quantifying numbers of kids who are enrolled in schools and numbers of teachers and the amount of money that was devoted to education. So there are a lot of um, blood numbers involved in, in the reports that were sent back. And I use those a lot in the second chapter of the book. Um, other documents include... Uh, meeting minutes from the General Council, which was a locally elected governing body in uh, based in San Luis, or members of uh, residents of San Luis, Goré, Rufis, and Dakar, the four communes of Senegal, which were unique in the fact that they had uh, French citizenship status. The, the residents of those four communes were able to vote for representatives to this General Council, which had 16 members, and they met at least once a year, sometimes twice. Um, to talk about the important issues facing the colony, um, and they had some authority to decide on, on various budgetary measures, including the public education budget. So there's a lot of discussion within that body on colonial schooling and the direction that it should take. Um, so that's the source that I used to, to some effect, I think, really in, in several chapters of the book, predominantly, though, it's, I use it most extensively in the fifth chapter. Um, and then uh, sources also include um, 
a variety of sort of ethnographic reports that were collected by colonial officials in rural areas um, where they were asked to collect to um, write down information and actually they're completing questionnaires that were sent to them by their superiors. They're asked to write down information about family practices, kind of in, in an attempt to kind of codify customary law. Um, and many of those touch on the ways that um, African societies educated their children and also the ways that the family works. So you can, I can get a good sense of um, this issue of sort of father's authority by looking at these ethnographic reports. Um, and there are really two more that are, that are three more that are important. There's a set of police, police files. Um, that look at political meetings, and in the sixth chapter of the book, which examines the political campaign leading up to Liz Yang's election in 1914, um, one of the things that I do there is to uh, kind of quote from these police reports where Africans um, were, you know, their, their words were written down, their speeches were, they were sort of noted and uh, submitted to the police authority to make sure that nothing subversive was going on in these political meetings. Um, there is also a collection of documents called the Cahier William Ponty, um, which are the, the William Ponty notebooks. These were um, ethnographic studies written by Senegalese students at the Economale William Ponty, which is the teacher training school. Um, that was located in Goree for a while and then moved outside of the city to a place called Sebi Um And these were written in the 30s and 40s, and they were uh, essentially um, exercises that all the students had to engage in in order to complete their, their studies at the teacher training college. And they would be given a, an essay question, or sort of research-based essay question, um, and then turned back to their home communities and asked to collect information about how their, you know, their community um, educated children in, in the case of the ones that I'm interested in. But there are a whole range of other topics in this that are really, really uh, quite interesting sources. Um, and so I use those. The time period is not exactly right, but I, I do use those to try to get a sense of what um, African people thought about um, their own educational methods as well as French ones. And the most exciting set of sources that the book relies on um, is a set of over 250 letters written by Africans themselves about colonial schools. Most of them were written by adults, but a good number um, were written by children, by, by either current students in French schools or young people who were trying to gain admission to French schools. And so those are really fascinating because they allow me they allow me glimpses into, you know, African strategies, the ways that they uh, explained their goals and hopes uh, to French officials or to French teachers in an effort to, you know, get, get something from them, really. I mean, there's a lot of these were requests for scholarships, for example. So they're, they're great um, and I think unique because um, really all, most of the other sources I mentioned were, at least the, the ones from the Colonial Archive, were um written by French people or French colonial officials. And these are, these are kind of breath of fresh air in the, in the sense that they're, um, that they're not, that they're written by Africans themselves. Great. Yeah. And you deal uh, with, um, with those sources in particular, I think in, in chapter four, where you're, where you're talking about um, a lot of the students at the, um, the school for sons of chiefs and interpreters. Um, That's right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this idea of trying to cultivate patronage ties and, um, and using this uh, colonial structure to their advantage. Um, 
Yeah, so much in in what you've in what you've just in what you've just said. Um, I wonder if, if um, one of the a couple of a couple of things that you just brought up, um, I found really fascinating um, in the book. First, um, the sort of uh, distinction between um, the sub- subjects versus citizens, and, mm-hmm. and sort of the um, the relationship of the commune to eventually the larger protectorate and that kind of thing. Um, because as, as, as you mentioned, one point, one of the interesting things about the, the period under discussion, right, the um, 1850s to 1914 that you, that you cover is sort of the newness of uh, this colonial enterprise in, in Senegal. And so I wonder if you could sort of talk about, about that um, subject versus uh, citizen dis- uh, distinction, um, and then I, I I'd like to really come back to the I think the last point you you raised, um, which is this idea of, of children um, or young people um, sort of beginning to um, exercise as some some autonomy and and um, and sort of you know beginning even with um, dis- disobeying parents mm-hmm. um, and and attending French schools against their parents' wishes, that kind of thing. But if first you could talk about the, the subject versus uh, citizen distinctions, that would be great. Absolutely. Um, well, in Senegal, uh, there, you know, there's a very long history, obviously, of French peasants um, dating back to, uh, to the 17th century in terms of the, 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 the establishment of, you know, permanent presence of trading companies, and then the 18th century for Senegal becoming a crown colony, and then um, the really increasing sort of bureaucratization and formalization of colonial rule after the Napoleonic Wars, um, because the colony had been taken away from from France by Britain during that conflict and then was returned. And so after about 1816, 1817, um, there's really a a focus on trying to kind of shore up the French presence and uh, influence there, which is one of the reasons why French colonial schooling dates from that period. Um, and also to eventually, by the end of the century, to start expanding out, outside of these coastal areas where France had, had had a presence for some time and also along the, along the rivers. And so the, the areas uh, the, where France, French presence uh, dates back the earliest were Gore and Saint-Louis. Um, Gore is an island off the coast of Dakar. Saint-Louis is... Most it actually is an island as well that's uh, right at the mouth of the Senegal River and uh, on the border of, of Senegal and Mauritania. Uh, and then the settlements of San Luis expanded out onto the mainland as well. So there are different neighborhoods, some of which are island and some of which are, are mainland. Um, those are the places where the Senegalese people were first given citizenship rights. Um, Dating to the 1830s, there was a a law passed that allowed some voting rights for uh, for African people there. And then in 1848, when France um, eliminated slavery in its colonies, uh, it incorporated former slaves who lived in those towns into the the ranks of people who had these uh, increased rights. Um, And then this was uh, essentially, it became a, a part of accepted um, practice in San Luis and Gore, and then when in the later the, the later nineteenth century, Rufisque and Dakar uh, became were declared to be communes as well as as San Luis and, and Gore were. Uh, 
the residents of those towns also had the, this citizenship status. Now, there's a distinction. You'll notice I'm not saying they were French citizens, right, because they weren't actually considered to be citizens of France. However, they had the rights of French citizens as residents of these communes. Um, and then in the late 19th century, there, as uh, France was really beginning to expand um, inland, and to establish a protectorate over uh, territories outside of the communes and their trading posts along the Senegal River and along the Sierra Salem River, um, there was never there was never a sense that they would be giving these kinds of rights to the Africans who lived in the newly acquired territories, territories acquired in the 1880s and 1890s. And so that's that's where they sort of this also had to do with. Um, the, the, the fact that slavery was now illegal in French colonies and the French knew that they couldn't ban slavery in these new territories that they were acquiring because it would uh, alienate the traditional aristocracies who they needed to work with um, if they were going to successfully administer their colony with minimal rebellion and minimal investment. Uh, and also they were concerned that um, you know, labor wouldn't get done in the protectorate areas if, if uh, slavery was really eliminated. And so one of the ways that they could um, allow slavery to continue in the protectorate was to maintain this very distinct you know, difference between people who lived in the communes who had the rights of French citizens and people who lived in the protectorate who did not and who were subjects and who were therefore... Um, who were therefore governed in part by the indigenous, which was a set of arbitrary laws which allowed French colonial officials to um, essentially, you know, determine that someone had violated the laws and then punish them with really no supervision, no oversight, no trial. Uh, and, and it was a way of um, really oppressing and exploiting the people in those regions of the colony to a much greater extent. Um, and then over the, the late 19th century, they're in the context of this expansion and trying to figure out how exactly the protectorate areas would work with the, um, the areas where the French had been present for a much longer time. Uh, some of French officials, particularly officials in the justice service, started to ask some pretty serious questions about whether or not the, the residents of the communes who were called the originaire, whether or not they actually had citizenship rights. And this is a question that gets debated and, and asked and kind of fought over for several decades. And then there was a judicial uh, reform passed in 1912 that essentially said that the only, pe only people who had been naturalized could be French citizens. And that um, you know, raised the ire of the originaire community in Senegal because it suggested that they, in fact, were not citizens, and that created a new debate, a new series of debates, and ultimately um, things were worked out in their favor, kind of on a temporary basis, and then their citizenship status was solidified with the passage of the Bloods Jan laws in 1915 and 1916. So that's a, that's a kind of long history of, of citizenship status in, um, in Senegal, but I think it is really crucial to, you know, to to real to remember that distinction, right? That the citizens on the coast and the communes, and then the subjects sort of everywhere else. Yeah, it, as I said, I, I found that um, uh, really interesting, um, really interesting distinction to, to contemplate. 
Um, so another um, sort of broad theme um, in the book has to do, um, sort of begins early in the book and continues, um, begins in the first chapter. Um, you sort of talk about the, the way that the colonial schools sort of facilitated this disobedience of, of uh, children who wanted to attend uh, French schools. Um, mm-hmm. And it's sort of, ties into, I think, a larger sort of undermining of um, traditional educational forms by the, um, by the colonial power. Um, and I wonder if you'd uh, um, say a bit more about that. Absolutely. So, yes, in the, in the first chapter, as you mentioned, um, one, of the, one of the sections looks at exactly that, at children who were disobeying their parents and coming to school um, to colonial schools because, uh, in large, in large part, I think it's because the teachers, um, sort of attempted to, to pique their interest by promising presents or sweets or, you know, recognition of various sorts. This was a period in the 1890s, immediately following colonial conquest, um, when teachers were under a lot of pressure to prove their worth, uh, by, you know, ensuring high, higher enrollments in the schools and making our schools a success. Um, and they struggled, really, with getting getting students to not only enroll, but then to remain um, interested and to continue attending school. And so they were looking for various um, tricks that they could employ to get to get the kids to come and to stay. And so they often would... Um, you know, as I said, give give them gifts to induce them to come to. They would give uh, awards to students who had um, pretty strong academic records or strong attendance. They would try to make the distribution of awards, the award ceremonies, very public. Um, they would often do it on the 14th of July celebrations, the French National uh, National Independence Holiday uh, celebrations, which you know were were uh, kind of a, a big deal in even in the rural areas of the colony, and they would try to do it that uh, to coincide with those celebrations to um, make it as public as possible and hopefully to not only reward the students who were already enrolled and who were doing well, uh, encourage them to continue, but also to encourage new kids, new students to come. And so there is there's not a ton of evidence on this, but there's there's enough that I think it can make the argument, which is that. Um, students started to come. They started to enroll in school. They would show up for a few days, and then their parents would realize where they were headed off to, and they, in many cases, would take them out. Um, so there are several instances of, of parents getting really upset about their kids, you know, kind of absconding off to the colonial school and disobeying them, and then, you know, they would, they would bring, them, bring them out of school. Um, this happened both in rural areas where the parents wanted their, their kids to help with agricultural labor, or they simply just didn't want them in the front schools. And it also happened in urban areas where uh, parents would often allow their kids to go to school for a period of time because they wanted them to learn some French. They, uh, by the late 19th century, recognized the value of that, the economic value of French language skills and also some math, math skills. Um, but then they would pull them out after, you know, a couple of years um, to try to get them jobs either as domestics and homes of French residents or working for a French commercial firm or in trade um, in various uh, various fields where they could use the 
skills that they had learned even in a couple of years um, in a French school and can do that to benefit the, the family. Um, and essentially, I think that is an instance of uh, children maybe with a desire to disobey their parents, but the parents actually using the French schools kind of to serve the same ends that they previously used uh, or can actually continue really to use traditional schooling to do, right? So they uh, are getting education for their kids and then having their kids go off to work for the benefit of the family. Um, so that's kind of the, the first moment. Um, and then I pick back up on the theme of children exercising autonomy or even disobeying their parents uh, subsequently, particularly uh, in the chapter on the school for sons of chiefs and interpreters, um, which looks at the community of kids who attended that school in the 1890s uh, and looks at the correspondence that many of them entered into with French officials. And I find this really interesting phrase that appears in many of the uh, letters that they wrote, um, where they're referring to a French official as my mother and my father. So you are my mother and my father, um, is the, the, the quote from several of these letters. And this actually, I, I asked around about this because it was so striking. Uh, I asked around with my you know, Wolof, Wolof language expert friends in Senegal to find out if this was something that had been translated from the Wolof language. And in fact, it has. There's a, a Wolof saying, Yasama ya, Yasama bai, um, which apparently was a way that it means you are my yasama ya yasama bai means you are my mother, you are my father. It's a way that um, people would simultaneously um, sort of pledge their dependence on another person and also sort of attempt to obligate that person to help them. And so this language gets translated into French, written into letters by young people who are attending the school for sons of cheese and interpreters, and sent off to their um, to the colonial officials who actually were very involved with this school, with this particular school, to a much greater extent than they were with others, because this was a school that was intended to train the next generation of colonial chiefs, really. These were going to be the people who are supposed to be working for the French government, but who also had traditional authority, and therefore you know, they would be listened to by the population much better than, you know, Average, average people. So there's a lot of involvement of people like the lieutenant governor of Senegal or um, the director of political or indigenous affairs, depending on the period of time that the title changed. Um, there's a lot of involvement of those folks in the school. And therefore, a lot of... Um, I, think that, I think the students in the school felt kind of freer to communicate with those officials directly. Um, and so that's... I don't, I don't know that I would call that disobedience, but I think it certainly reflects increasing autonomy on the part of uh, on the part of these students who were seeking to obligate French officials to help them in one way or another, either to get them uh, a change in their living circumstances or uh, to get them, um, you know, access to uh, the, the ability to travel home for, in one case, Mbachen um, Jop, who was the son of Lat Jojo wanted to return to his home village for his, um, to undergo his circumcision ceremony. And so he wrote to a colonial official to gain uh, permission to, to return home for that. So it's a really interesting kind of um, evolution, I think, of social networks and hierarchical ties 
where you see students, young people, reaching out to these these French folks who are really outside of their um, African community and getting them to get you get involved in sometimes very intimate matters in their in their lives. Um, and then the the theme I think comes up again in particular in the final chapter of the book, which is the one that looks at again at the election of Lesjen Les in nineteen fourteen, and um, if you've you know read anything about this election, you're familiar with the Young Senegalese, which is the sort of first um, political party or political group uh, that was not the sort of older style electoral clans is what they're called in the, in the, in the literature. Um, and the young Senegalese emerged out of a sort of intellectual uh, society uh, where young men would gather together to talk about their education. They would talk about um, the vocabulary that they had learned, kind of interesting words. They liked to play word games. They talked about current events and politics. They were very well versed in what was going on elsewhere in Africa and talked about things that was going on in South Africa, for example. Um, and they also were, would read uh, works of folks like Booker T. Washington, right? So they're very much involved in this sort of international um, international African-African-American to African diaspora politics and, and intellectual culture. Um, and then as the election of 1914 is, is coming near, those young men who were all pretty highly educated, they mostly worked for the colonial administration in lower level uh, positions, so they were literate, they were uh, professionals, and they had this sort of vision of themselves as a, as a new kind of, of educated African person. Uh, many of them became involved in politics and eventually came to support Les Jane's candidacy and were really instrumental in getting him elected, particularly in San Luis, um, where he, he actually didn't win the election in San Luis. He, um, he lost out to Henri Hamburger, who was uh, the candidate supported by the sort of uh, mixed, racially mixed political uh, leader. Of, of the of the town, who was the mayor, Jacinda Duvez. Um, but there, he, he garnered enough votes, Lesjan garnered enough votes in San Luis that when those were added to the votes that he had won in Dakar, he came out uh, about 200 votes ahead in in the final final round of the election. And so the, the young Senegalese were really instrumental in that. And I'm making the case in that chapter that these young people in San Luis uh, did, they disobeyed their uh, their elders, who were accustomed to essentially getting to decide who their dependents would vote for. Um, this also was the first election that um, had a secret ballot, and so it allowed these young people the opportunity to even pretend that they were going to vote for the candidate who their elders wanted them to, to, to choose, and then to go into the voting booth and make a different choice that was more in line with, with their vision of themselves as educated people um, and the goals that they had for for their future and the future of the colony. They also liked Dan himself because he was a highly educated um, man who was articulate, who could speak Wolof very well, but could also speak French very well, um, and who seemed to kind of represent what young, educated people could achieve uh, if, they, if they chose to do so. Well, and, and thanks for sort of um, plotting that, um, that, I don't know if we um, call it an, an evolution, but going from disobedience to sort of this um, self-advocacy or um, to 
political autonomy and, and, um, and action. That's a really, um, nice way I think of, of, uh, showing how the theme carries, uh, throughout the book. Um, so since we're, you know, since, <laughs> since we're here, let's, uh, um, let's talk a little bit about, uh, Blaise Dien and, and, um, why, in addition to the reasons you just, uh, you just alluded to why, um, he in particular, um, was the candidate around which, um, all of this political change, um, uh, coalesced. Um, he becomes the colony's first, um, black representative to the Assemblée Nationale and, and in that sense is, is, is sort of a, um, a key figure. But I'm just wondering about the, the, the person of Diane that, that, um, that makes him so special for lack of a better term. Well, I think Dan was, was so, um, to use the word, so, so special, so appealing to this, um, to the populace at this point in time for a number of reasons. Um, I, I think first there's, there's, there was real dissatisfaction with the incumbent representative to the Assemblée Nationale, um, Emmanuel-François Carpeau, who had been elected in 1902. Um, he was a member of the Métis, the, the mixed-race community, which had been extremely politically and economically uh, powerful in Senegal and um, had dominated and really into the early 20th century, still dominated the General Council, um, and it had Carpeau as you know, the, the representative to the Assembly for over a decade at this point. Um, but there was a lot of dis- dissatisfaction with him. He had sort of be- he had become kind of distanced from the population uh, by about 1912. He also, after that 1912 judicial reform that I mentioned earlier, was passed, where it indicated that uh, it, it seemed to suggest that the originaire would no longer be considered citizens, right? Because it said you had to be naturalized to become a, a French citizen. Capo kind of essentially went on, on the record as supporting that uh, that reform. And that really angered a lot of the um, black voting public in Saint-Louis and Dakar and in other, other cities um, in Senegal. So that's part of, that was part of the excitement, I think, around Jen. Um, although it should be said that he, when he initially came, so he hadn't been in Senegal for a long time. Um, he had had a long career in the customs service, working for the Colonial Customs Service for France in a variety of different colonies, including colonies in the Caribbean, uh, elsewhere in Africa, but he had never been posted to uh, to Senegal, and so he'd been absent for quite a long time. Um, and then he had gone back to France in, I think it's 1913, to consider um, trying to seek a promotion. And he had to take an exam in order to do that. And uh, so he was in France, I think on a congé, having done this exam and considering his options and decided that he was going to come back to Senegal to stand for election. And so he, he kind of steps foot in Senegal for the first time in a long time uh, in January of 1914. Um, and the election was, the first round of the election was scheduled for, May, for April. Um, the second round where he was ultimately elected took place in May of that year. So he, he at first was relatively unknown, and the, it's, it's interesting to read the uh, administrative reports on the kind of predictions for the election uh, that were written right around this time. You know, well, there's this guy, Blazian, he might run, but there's no way he's going to win. People don't know who he is. It's that kind of, that kind of language. They were sure that Kakpo was going to be reelected without any problem. 
Um, and that Danny really wouldn't even, you know, just have an impressive, an impressive showing at all. Uh, but things started to change r- relatively quickly as um, as people saw him, I, I think, as, as an inspiring figure. And there's a lot of discussion um, closer to the election in the administrative reports, and then in particular just after the election when the lieutenant governor of Senegal had to explain how in the world was Jane had been elected and what this might mean for the future of the colony and to explain that to his superiors in Paris. Um, and and kind of in those documents, you start to see um, that the young people, young educated men, were really inspired by Blaisdien, as I said before. As a, he was a kind of, kind of emblematic of the kinds of things that they could accomplish if they tried hard enough. He was evidence that a well-educated and articulate African man could um, gain high office. Right? I mean, he was he was the highest sort of ranking elected leader in, in the country and colony at the time. Um, and then also he had a, a political platform that was really appealing to people. He wanted to promote equality. He was married to a French woman and had a racially mixed son. And uh, you and talked some about that and said, you know, the fact that I have a white wife and a, and, a, and a mixed son means that I am the best place to represent all races in the colony. I understand how all of these different, you know, pieces fit together, and you can see that in my own biography. Um, He also had plans for education. He wanted to see a a great expansion of educational opportunity in Senegal. He wanted there to be good quality education for uh, for Africans as well as for whites and and, and Matisse. Um, And this is important, I think, because this comes pretty quickly after a a really significant debate in the General Council, and this is what I discuss in Chapter 5 of the book, about the issue of access to high-quality schools in the colony. Um, In 1909, there was a a law or an ordinance that had been passed that uh, essentially said that in order to attend the best schools, which were called the urban schools, in in, uh, the four communes, one had to be at grade level, and that's, that's putting that into modern uh, education speak, but you had to be at grade level in, uh, in your French language capability. And that was impossible for most African students because most Africans spoke Wolof or Serer or Pula or other African languages in the home, uh, not French. And they didn't begin, even, even the members of the Métis community were upset about this because many of them use those languages at home as well. And, um, didn't begin to learn French until they got to school. And so this became a huge debate in the General Council in 1909, um, ultimately was decided in the favor of, of African families and children, um, but it kind of it kind of re-emerged several times over the next, um, even the next decade. In 1917, it, it came, or 1916 and 17, it kind of came out again. So that that's the kind of subtext to Jiang's um, elect electoral platform and his campaign, I think, is that people were aware that, you know, access to education was a really crucial, really crucial uh, issue and that it could be uh, taken away from them in some regards. They could have gone to other schools, but just not the best ones, right, if that 1909 ordinance had been carried out as, uh, as originally written. So he wanted to see a you know, greater educational opportunity. He also had a number of, a, a number of appealing economic Policies and plans wanted to encourage more trade in Saint Louis and 
um, I, can't, I think it was it wanted to um, do some work on the port itself to make it more capable or to make it more accessible for like larger steamships to come in and trade directly there instead of trading further south in Senegal, where a lot of the trade has shifted by the early 20th century, just due to the kind of physical space constraints. Um, so, you know, he had, he had a variety of things that he was interested in, but I think he was appealing uh, in particular because of his status as a, as a well-educated, articulate black man to whom French officials actually like, listened and, you know, were, were um, willing to kind of engage with. Really, really interesting. Yeah, definitely um, shades of sort of the early um, uh, national political career of Obama, I guess. Um, I thought there were some interesting parallels there. Well, um, thanks for going back to uh, to Chapter 5, which um, is uh, titled Access or Exclusion, the Politics of Race in Schools of the Four Communes between 1900 and 1910. Um, there, there's some really interesting sort of... Um, rhetorical shifts uh, going on in that in that chapter, one of which um, is you sort of um, talking about the 1909 um, proposed reform. Um, the notion of, of race, um, the, the accusations of, of, of racism that sort of came with that uh, reform in the communes um, sort of changed the, the, the discussion of race. Um, and, and I really... Uh, would love it if you talk um, a, a bit of, about that because in the in that chapter, the thing that I found fascinating, <laughs> excuse me, was that um, the opponents um, of this reform really uh, sort of mentioned over and over again um, that it had to do with race and color and, and related concept, concepts, whereas the administration sort of really issued um, using terms like that. Um, um, and instead sort of made it, um, uh, just said it was really about, you know, language, competencies, and so on. Um, if you could talk about that, that'd be great. Yeah, so I, that, that, that's, uh, I think that is the, the sort of rhetorical distinction in a nutshell, right, that on the one hand, the, um, the state really didn't want to come across as a, as a racist state, and it went against French ideas about republicanism and citizenship, and, and seeing itself as a sort of as a place of um, you know liberty, equality, and, and fraternity or brotherhood. Right. So, so it, it went against these ideals of the French Revolution and the French republicanism. Um, and there, they sort of, I think they never would have admitted that this was about race. But um, and I think on, on a very surface level, the policy isn't. It is written about education, or about language, and the, the way that language um, skill and um, language ability uh, prepared students appropriately or didn't um, for attending the best Schools. Now, I should say that this 1909 reform um, followed up on a, an overhaul of education that had been uh, put in place under Governor General Ernest Rune in 1903, and that applied to the entire colony. And it was the entire, sorry, the entire French West Africa Federation. It wasn't just a Senegal-specific uh, reform. And that's when this sort of three-tiered system of colonial schools was created, it, it essentially formalized something that had 
for the most part, already was in place in Senegal, um, where the rural schools were pretty basic. They were, you know, they only offered two or three grades. Um, they had, you know, 30 or 40, maybe as many as 100 kids in one school with maybe three classes and three teachers um, and then some assistant teachers. And most of the teachers in the rural areas were African because uh, it just, they simply couldn't get enough French people to do it and French weren't interested and French people weren't necessarily interested in living in rural Africa and training uh, children in the very basic French language and basic math and that sort of thing. Um, and so the schools in the rural areas pursued what they called adapted education. Um, although this was not, uh, it wasn't entirely accepted by teachers, most of whom, African teachers, most of whom had been educated, you know, in San Louis and were originaire and were interested in giving students the same kind of education that they had received. So there's a little bit of tension there. But it, at any rate, that was that was a system that was already in place in the rural areas. And then in the um, urban areas, there were a variety of schools that were essentially that offered the French metropolitan curriculum with some, maybe some minor revisions to um, make it a little bit better suited for the Senegalese um, milieu. But really it was, it was a, those are the schools that the uh, French officials, if they had kids that were with them in, in, in uh, Senegal, they would send their kids there. Um, if they didn't send them back to France, many of them did in fact send them back to France, but you know, there were some French kids in the schools. There were a lot of the members of the racially mixed community, the Matisse community sent their kids there, and then some Africans. So in 1903, um, this gets formalized. It creates three tiers. There are village schools or rural schools that were those you know, lower, lower level um, schools that offered basic instruction with African teachers. There were regional schools, which were um, colonial schools in larger population centers, but not the communes. Well, for the most part, not the communes, um, where there were a little, a little bit higher level of education possible. There would be a European director and then African teaching staff both beneath that uh, director of the school, and a little bit just more intensive in terms of the, the academic subjects offered, but it was still adapted education. And it would pull the best students from all the different rural schools into the uh, regional school, and then some of the local kids could go there as well. And then there were the urban schools. And these are the ones, um, this was a new designation for those schools in the communes that offered the metropolitan curriculum. And they were only supposed to be, um, the urban schools were only supposed to be available in places that had a pretty sizable European population um, and where you know, that the population demanded and could support the school. They had European uh, director and or, you know, headmaster, European teaching staff to the extent possible with maybe a, an African, uh, a few Africans teaching, I don't know, some local languages or Arabic or something like that, if, if, if that were offered. Um, so that's sort of, that's sort of the, the, the way that that, the, the way that those schools functioned. And, in the communes, that decree, that 1903 reform, was never really put into place. So what happened in 1909 is the administration decided it was time to apply that three-tiered system to the schools of the communes. And so essentially this, the different schools were uh, reclassified in that year. Um, and only a very small number of select schools, one boys' school and uh, you know, several girls' schools in each of the um, communes was allowed to uh, 
to have that urban designation. And that's when people got really upset. Um, so it was the sort of delay between that, the 1903 reform and the 1909 one um, in the communes. Um, and I, I think that, you know, it, it became a real issue of, uh, of access um, at that point. And the discourses around race started to, to emerge out of the, this you know, debate because on the, on the surface level, it's about language. Um, but the only people who were affected were African. And, you know, it gets taken up in the general council um, in a really overt way with um, sort of counselors who are most sympathetic to the African electorate, to the black electorate, saying things like, this is about the color of the pupils. This is about skin color. This is not about anything else. This is very new discourse in 1909. As few as seven or eight years previously, there had been a similar discussion about some changes that were being made to uh, education policies and in schools where some of the same people who in 1909 were so quick to call this, uh, essentially, and they don't use the term racism, but that's, you know, it's an insinuation. It's a, a bit of an anachronistic use of the term. Um, but they're saying, you know, it's about skin color in 1909. Some of those same people uh, less than a decade earlier were reassured when they, they asked, well, is this reassignment of students, is this about, is this really about language? Is this really about age? Is this really about sort of maintaining a mora- proper morality by not mixing younger children with older children in the same classroom? And they were reassured when the administration said, well, yes, it is. That's, and they, they accepted it. Less than a decade later, they're not willing to accept it. And so what I do in that chapter is to try to trace it why, what has changed in that first decade of the 20th century, um, that that leads people to interpret this 1909 reform, rightly so, I would argue, as a segregationist kind of measure. Um, and, you know, I see there, there's a number of important turning points in that, in that window of time where uh, in 1904, 1905, I think it was, um, one of the main schools, the uh, director of the school didn't like having African or having black children mixing with his uh, white students and wanted to close the school, this one particular school, to black children. And so um, just sort of wrote to the lieutenant governor and said, I have this idea, I want to do this. He didn't ever get official permission, but the lieutenant governor knew what was going on. And um, on the start of school, one one year, just decided that black children were no longer welcome there and told them they had to go to a different school. And that generated a lot of correspondence, including a very interesting letter from one of the children who was affected, who said, you know, they turned us distinctly, all of the black, all of the black people, they turned all of us away. And that, that was a really striking kind of moment for me in the archive on um, this use of, of a racial term in a, in a politicized way that I hadn't seen before, at least not with regard to education. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a couple of other instances like that leading up to this debate in 1909, which I think is another kind of key turning point in, in the racialization of politics surrounding schools and this use of a new kind of racial vocabulary to talk about um, the issue of access. Yeah, really, really interesting. Um, and this uh, sort of new 
discourse of race, um, of course, sort of helps to pave the way for the uh, Nécritude movement and eventually, um, uh, arguably, I guess, uh, decolonization. And I wonder if you'd sort of talk about um, those two um, legacies, I guess, of um, of the, the 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 period under discussion. Sure. Well, I see the the changes that I focus on in the book, um, which I'm I I make the case that these various changes connected to colonial schooling um, from the 1850s and then really kind of gathering speed in the late 19th century and the early 20th century, taken together, all, all of these various changes, I think, really helped to prepare the way for Blaise Jane's election. So, like, that that's the main overall, the, the overall argument of the book, that everything else is trying to kind of, um, kind of point the way forward. But I do think that it's also connected, as, as you suggest, to the emergence of negritude and, to an extent, uh, kind of cultural nationalism, not nationalist politics um, in the post-war period, and um, and I think that the legacies are 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 there um, primarily because once again we see education playing a really important political role in a variety of ways. So negritude emerges out uh, in, you know in, in Paris in the thirties among um, educated. Students, West African students, um, uh, students from the French Antilles who are there uh, attending school and getting involved in, in sort of intellectual currents in Paris at the time and, and so on and so forth. Um, and there is, I think, a direct link between the kinds of political roles that, I, that I'm arguing education played in Senegal previously to the uh, political work that education and literacy and, you know, facility in the French language and all those things we're doing um, in, in, in a war period. Um, and I think, you know, you see that someone like Leopold Senghor, who of course is known as uh, one of the founders of Negritude and then went on to become a politi- uh, political uh, figure in Senegal and the first president of Senegal after independence. Um, he is someone with a you know similar kind of set of credentials to to Blaise Daniel, although you know even much more highly educated and with this long experience in France and French schools and so on. Um, and he was able to use those experiences again for purposes that his educators would never have intended, and to take what he learned in French schools and, and rework it and use it in in new ways. Um, you know, the discourse around schooling gets changed by then. Um, one of the things I, hadn't, I haven't really mentioned is that uh, some of these people who were interested in schools, right, that those folks who, who wanted to attend or who wanted to ensure that Africans had the ability to attend the best French schools, they wanted their students, they wanted their children to gain an education that was equivalent to what their French peers um, would have would have gained either in a school in France or if they attended a school in the colonies or, or whatever. They wanted equal education. They didn't. They they did not accept the idea of adapted education because it they they thought and, and rightly so that it was sort of inferior. It was it was dumbed down. It was made very uh, too basic, um, and they saw education as a way of um, gaining access to. You know, greater equality with the French to you know, potentially higher paying positions, etc. And so they wouldn't have wanted um, 
They wouldn't have wanted inferior education. They wanted a metropolitan curriculum. So if that meant that they were going to learn, you know, French history and French geography, in addition to learning some things about Senegal, they were okay with that, I think. People like Senghor, however, so by the time the, the, the negritude movement comes along, I think that discourse has shifted. Um, you know, they still want to have equal education. They want to be considered equals to the French. But I think there's a much greater emphasis by then on needing to recognize African culture and African history and African contributions to kind of world uh, creativity by, you know, by the negritude um, intellectuals. So there is certainly a shift. It's not, you can't say, I'm not trying to suggest that it's the same thing going on in the, in the period I'm looking at and in the post-war, in a war and post-war period. But um, I think there are some really important and interesting continuities. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. Um, this, I, I really, um, yeah, can't say enough um, much I enjoyed reading um, reading the book um, and I've really enjoyed uh, having this conversation with you. Um, I wonder if you'd uh, tell us uh, what you're currently working on. Well, I'm working on a couple of things. Um, there are a couple of articles that are that kind of that came out of the same research on education in Senegal that I'm, I'm trying to bring to a close at the moment. Um, one of them is going to examine uh, Senegalese students who attended schools outside of Senegal, either in um, well. For in France, uh, for the most part, and also North Africa. And then another one is going to look at uh, strategies for obtaining um, scholarships uh, to study at a school either within Senegal or outside of Senegal that were used in particular by, uh, by, by racially mixed families and kind of tracing differences in the demographic makeup of that community over a period of 50 years or so by looking at the um, the scholarship applications where they had to make a case for the deservedness of their family by telling a compelling story about the service to the colony that their you know family members or ancestors had had given. So those are some you know a couple of pretty short term projects, and then I'm also starting on a new research project that examines. Um, it, it's a bit of a, sh- a shift for me because it's kind of a, a labor and migration um, history, um, but it's also there's some continuity in the sense that I'm interested in roughly the same time period, the latter part of the 19th century, early 20th century, um, and I'm also interested in in young people who were acting in in ways that may or may not have been supported by their family members. Um, the project examines. West Africans um, from Senegal and also other places in French West Africa. At this point, I have some sources that um, allow me to will allow me to say some things about the French Sudan, so pre- present day Mali, and I'll be looking further afield as well. Um, young people who traveled from French West Africa to France um, to try to to work. Either in many cases, they're working as domestic servants. They also were working in restaurants or kind of service sector. There were some who were uh, performers and the Exposition Coloniale, so sort of ethnographic uh, performance troops uh, in, in the period that were quite popular in that period of time in, in Western Europe. Um, and then many of them either lost their jobs or they couldn't 
make ends meet or they fell in financial hard times for one reason or another and uh, sought repatriation to Senegal or elsewhere in West Africa from the French state and they were allowed to do so if they had lived for more than a year in France. France would pay for them to return home. So that's the that's the project and I think, you know, given the, what's been going on right now with the contemporary um, migrant crisis, this is a really kind of timely um, historical project that I'm hoping I'll be able to use to at least to provide us with a little bit of kind of time depth for, um, for what's going on right now with, um, with the migration crisis in, in Europe, particularly, obviously. So it's coming from, from West Africa into, into Europe and forming part of that much larger stream uh, from the Middle East and elsewhere as well. Well, that sounds, sounds really, really um, like a great project. Um, and I hope, yeah, I will, I will certainly keep in touch to uh, hear how that, how that progresses. Um, but I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Um, and I hope that you will come back and, and speak with us when you have another uh, book project. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun and uh, I appreciate the opportunity. So thank you very much. Not at all. Um, so folks, joining me today uh, was Professor Kelly Duke Bryant. And we were discussing her new book. Educationist Politics, Colonial Schooling, and Political Debate in Senegal, 1850s to 1914, published by the University of Wisconsin Press. Thanks very much.